Carrie, and it's such a joy to be with you all this morning. It's been a, a joy over this last month plus to, to get to know this church, to serve this church, to worship with this church. And so know that you've been a blessing to those of us who are at Redemption Church that are now part of Restoration Church. This has been um, a glorious time and an encouraging time for us. And I'm excited to preach the word to you this morning. Um, now, I have to confess, I was originally more excited when I was given next week's text. Okay, so originally I was given Romans 8 verses 14 through 17, and uh, if you know that text, spoiler alert if you don't, but it's on adoption, and it's on becoming children of God, and it's about God as our Father, and so you've got a warm treat awaiting you next week, but I got notified, hey, we're, we're shifting the schedule, you're going to be the week before, and so I said, okay, let's, let's check this out, and I started looking at the text, and I'm like, man, this text sure says death and flesh and hostility a lot. Like, I want my Abba Father text back, right? But today's text is, is critical. It is important, and it is good because it reminds us of our position apart from Christ. And that is what sets up the good news that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, last week, Pastor Mike started to lay the groundwork in, in Romans chapter 8, and we saw there how we who are in Christ are free from condemnation for our sin. God has done for us what the law could not do for us because of our sin. He, he sent God the Son, Jesus, who came and perfectly upheld the righteous requirement of the law. He did that for us. And then he went to the cross and took the punishment that we deserve in our place. And that brings us to the glorious news that we see in Romans 8.1, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And really, all of chapter 8 sort of reiterates, it points back to it, it proves this, this thesis, if you will, in Romans 8, chapter 1, that, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And while Romans chapter 8 is an overwhelmingly positive chapter. It's extremely encouraging, which is why many people say, hey, that's my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, right? While it's, while it's extremely positive, there's also a contrasting negative side to the chapter, right? a contrasting negative side that is presented, and we see it even in verse 1. If you look carefully, it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Right? The implication there are that there are those that are in Christ Jesus and there are those outside of Christ Jesus. That there's a difference, that they are different in their being, and as a result, they are different in their relationship to God. And that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to begin in Romans 8, chapter 5, and we're going to be reading through verse 13. So if you want to turn there, if you have your Bibles, and we'll read in Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 5 together. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to, to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans chapter 8 is a passage of identity. It's a passage that that establishes who we are. And the great theme of of Romans chapter 8 is not ultimately sanctification. It's not about who we are becoming, but it's about assurance. It's about assurance in in our identity. And so what we see here, first off, in in verses 5 through 8, is this contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian. Paul uses the term mind, or some translations say mindset, and he identifies each of us as either having the mindset of the flesh or the mindset of the spirit. And and this mindset is inclusive of our entire being. It's what characterizes us. It's what composes us. To have the mindset of the flesh or the spirit is not just to think in a particular way. It's not just referring to, to the mental side of us, but it's actually to be a particular way. It's to be of that nature. It's who we are, what we are concerned with, what we are focused by, and what we are directed by. And so Paul says, you are either going to have a mind of the flesh or a mind of the spirit. You're going to fall into one of those two categories. And what we see in Galatians 5, and and we're going to keep coming back to Galatians 5, by the way. That's what we read at the beginning of our time, and it complements our text today wonderfully. So we're going to keep coming back to that text as well. But what we see there is that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Okay, they're different. They're opposed. And what we see in Scripture is that our natural mind is the flesh. Our natural state is to be in the flesh. We are born as those apart from Christ. And when you read flesh here, your mind might jump immediately to the physical. You might just think about the immediate physical. You, you might think about a lifestyle of, of sexual sin. But what we see in Scripture is that to be in the flesh is not just to, to be living in carnal debauchery or sensuality or sexual sin, although these, these characteristics might be present. There's more to it than that, though. In Galatians 5, the list we read earlier where Paul lays out the the evidences of the flesh, he says the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. So yes, things you might think of when you think flesh, but also idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And so those with the mindset of the flesh are focused on, they're attracted to, they are about the things of the flesh. It's a mindset of of self-absorption. To be of the flesh isn't just to, to do those things, it's to be that way. And again, we see this as our natural disposition. 
In Romans 5, we're told that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, um, one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So as a result of Adam's sin, sin and death, and thus the mindset of the flesh came to us all. And so for those in the flesh, their, their thoughts, their affections, their desires, their pursuits are about themselves. They're ultimately about themselves and the things of this world. And this is exactly what John warns us of in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The non-Christian loves the world above all else. They're so preoccupied by it, they're consumed by it, their purpose and meaning are found in chasing after the things of this world. And man, we find this unapologetically in our culture, right? Our culture says, be you, do what comes natural, follow your heart, you're born this way, you only live once. The world assumes the best of our flesh, and it ignores the sinful nature. And so in all of those um, sayings that I just ran through, the sentiment behind it all is don't fight against what comes natural. Lean into those things. Go after immediate gratification. Go after satisfaction in this life. Be about this life. But if there was ever a church that understood that to go after things of this world is to be chasing after the wind, it would be us, right? Having just come out of Ecclesiastes. Pleasure is fleeting. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, was as well-resourced as any, and he threw all his might, all his resources at chasing pleasure, and he found it was meaningless. It offered nothing. Riches are temporary. Life is short. The world can be cruel, and it offers you everything, and yet it leaves you broke. There's a lack of peace in the world. There's this constant search and never-finding Last week, I watched an interview on 60 Minutes with Paul McCartney, and uh, the interviewer asked him, you know, what's one misconception that people have? What's one thing that people don't understand about you? And uh, he said, I still have insecurities. And that really struck me because throughout the interview, he had said other things like, hey, I'm still trying to prove myself. I'm still trying to impress everyone. And so you, here you have, like, the original rock star, right? Everyone knows Paul McCartney. He's a billionaire. He's 77, still in good health, touring the world, and yet he's saying, I'm still searching. I'm still trying to find satisfaction and ultimate meaning in this life. The world leaves you empty, and that's the best the flesh can offer, always striving and never arriving. The text goes as far as to say here that the non-Christian cannot please God. Those are strong words. Those might be jarring words to you. But if we think about the Scriptures, how could they please God? We, we know that in the Scriptures, to be apart from Christ is to be an enemy of God. It's to be at enmity with Him. Even those Christians who do good, 
moral things from seemingly good intentions are still constrained by the things of this world. The flesh is still their focus. They're still focused on this earthly kingdom, on the blessings that can come here and now. And sadly, in that, in doing that, in chasing after things of this world, they miss out on true meaning, on true satisfaction, on lasting, eternal blessing. I think we've all known uh, a friend or a family member who's a non-Christian, and we've said, man, they would make a great Christian. I really wish they were on Team Jesus, right? They're kind. They, they're servant-hearted. They're a joy to be around. But the Scriptures are clear that even their good moral deeds, if not done unto God, can ultimately not please God. Ultimately, they're in the flesh. They are dead and hostile to God. The Scriptures say that we cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve the flesh and the Spirit. That non-Christian cannot please God or fulfill the righteousness of the law. But we see that for those who are in Christ, we have had a mindset shift. We've been shifted from a mind of the flesh to the Spirit. And we read in sharp contrast to the works of the flesh that those in the Spirit, Galatians 5.24, belong to Christ Jesus and have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so those with the mind of the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And as a result, they have life and peace. How is this possible? This is only possible as the result of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Christians are not perfect. Christians still sin. And yet their desire, because of the Spirit in them, is to please God. That's a result of possessing the Spirit of God. As a quick aside, we see in this text and we see throughout the scriptures that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is referred to both as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. These all refer to the third person in the Godhead. And so if I use any of those terms, or if Paul does, he's referring to God, the Spirit. And this is the essence of, of what it means to be a Christian. It's to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what distinguishes us from the world. And so just as death and sin came to all men, all men through Adam, as we established earlier, Romans 5 says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So to be Christian is to be alive in Christ. Just as those who are in the flesh are by nature of the flesh, so those that are in Christ Jesus are by nature of the Spirit. The Spirit has changed us. The word we use for this is regeneration. We have been changed by the Holy Spirit of God. We have been regenerated. Jesus calls this being born again. We read in John chapter 4 where Jesus is talking to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, and he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you can like see the wheels turning in his head, right? And he's like, how can a man be born if he's old? See, to enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? 
And Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So Christians, by the work of the Holy Spirit, have been changed from the inside out. Where we were once dead and children of wrath, we have now been given life and made children of the King. We've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and we are now growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And this fruit of the Spirit comes to those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so, the great hope that we have as Christians, as those regenerate, as those born again, is not in our own discipline. It's not in our own determination. It's not in our own grit, but it's in the Spirit of God in us, who has exchanged our mind of flesh for a mind of the Spirit. And this is our basis of assurance. This is our basis of hope. It's not in us, but it is, as we just sang, in Christ in us. The home where our uh, road group meets has this beautiful water fountain and this beautiful uh, water fixture, and uh, sometimes it's on, sometimes it's off. The kids like to turn it on and off and on and off and on and off. Um, but it's, it's beautiful to look at, it's beautiful to listen to, but at the end of the day, all that thing is doing is recycling water that somebody else has dumped in it, right? It's just, it's just moving that water around. It's, it's not coming from anywhere other than this artificial source. If we compare that to a spring or a brook in nature, that spring or brook is also nice to look at, also um, makes a, a beautiful noise, but it is pouring forth from its very being. It's natural. It's coming. It, ha- it has the source of that water, right, in it. And so it is to be in the Spirit. To be in the Spirit is to have growth and to produce good fruit and to have a spring of water Welling, in, welling up within us toward eternal life. The non-Christian might conjure up morality, but it's not pleasing to God, it's not derived by the Spirit, and it does not produce good and lasting fruit. The Christian, on the other hand, has been radically changed. The Christian has been changed in his or her very nature, and that new nature is what causes us to desire to please God. And so Paul says, you are in the flesh or you are in the spirit. You are in death or you are in life. You are at enmity with God or you are at peace with God. And having drawn this contrast, he then shifts in verses 9 through 11 to focus the conversation on the Christian. And he looks at the Christian's current condition and the Christian's future hope. And what we see is that in in verses 9 and 10 is that although we are, as Christians, as those in Christ currently in the Spirit, and we've been given a mind of the Spirit, there is a sense in which we are still enslaved by our bodies. What do I mean by that? Let's read the text. Paul, in in verse 9, says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
First off, just to clear this up, if you're reading this text and your mind goes straight to Paul saying, you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, Paul's not trying to say here, if you're really saved, right? He's not, he's not trying to make them doubt their salvation. Rather, what he's doing is he's actually emphasizing their position in Christ. He's, he's essentially saying, if as is indeed the case, you are in Christ. He knows that these Roman Christians are just that. They are Christians. They are in Christ. They have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so the if here points to the results. It's, it's Paul's way of saying, given the indwelling Holy Spirit of God inside you, you now belong to God. You have new life, and you have new position in Christ. And yet, the Christian has this sort of now-but-not-yet identity. We've been given life in the Spirit, and yet our flesh is still dead. Paul says we reside in this body of death. You see, our, our new identity as Christians, our new identity as those in the Spirit isn't as a result of being removed from this body of sin, this body of death that we were born into. We still reside in this body, and our body is dead because of sin. If any of us has lived any amount of time, I think we start to realize pretty quickly that our bodies are deteriorating, right? I don't think I really made that re- realization until, until 30. That was it. So I crossfitted pretty hard in my 20s, and I was like, you know, what are, why are people writing all these articles that CrossFit will kill you? Now, I love CrossFit, by the way, so no, no judgment here. But basically, I turned 30, and man, it's like the clock went over and was like, you're not allowed to deadlift anymore. You know, your body is broken. And so regardless of whether uh, you, you are, you know, in great health or not, your time will come. You might be 80 or 90 before it happens, but your time will come. We all for better or for worse, because of the indwelling sin within us, we are marching toward death. That's a morbid, heavy thought for a sunny Sunday morning, but that is the reality of our lives. We are marching toward death, and we reside in a body that is deteriorating. From from dust we come, and from dust we will return. And similarly, even as we reside in a body of death, and yet we we have this mind that has been regenerated in in the spirit within us that has changed our mind and our affections, at the same time, we're still at war with our flesh, with the lingering earthly desires that we were born with. We hear this now, but not yet, tension from the Apostle Paul in the preceding chapter in Romans chapter 7. He says there, starting in in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that... When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. How true do we know this to be of the Christian life? Like, can we all not say yes and amen? 
with what Paul is saying there. Like, we've been changed. We've been born again. We've been regenerated by the Spirit of God living in us. He's changed our desires. He's changed our passions. And yet we're still at war. And we still do these things we don't want to do. And even when, when we do desire God, it's not as strongly as we wish we desired God. So we are in these bodies that are deteriorating. We're still fighting the sin and flesh that lingers. And even now, though, Christians possess spiritual life. We possess spiritual life just as our bodies were made dead by Adam's sin, so our spirits have been regenerated by Jesus' righteousness. But thanks be to God that our current condition of life in the Spirit and death in the body is not our final condition. We read in verse 11 where it says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And so the Christian is one who not only has the privilege of life through the Spirit right now, having the mindset of the Spirit instead of the the mindset of the flesh, but the Christian is also the one that has the future promise of eternal life and the resurrection of our mortal bodies. I think we've established everyone here, unless Christ returns, is going to die. Okay, we've got a 100% mortality rate running right now. But if you are in Christ, you can hope, you can believe that death is not your final destination. Rather, resurrection of your physical bodies is your final destination. The same Spirit of God who gives life to your spirit will also restore your physical body. We are promised physical resurrection, including the transformation of this fallen form that we are currently in to an eternal and a glorified form. Think about that. Freed from disease, freed from pain, freed from shin splints, freed from lower back pain when you deadlift. That's what we're freed and free from death. So as Christians, we don't forsake physicality. We don't think that we're just going to return to some sort of spirit form floating around. Rather, we believe that the spirit who regenerates our spirit and gives us a new mind will also restore our physical bodies. And this can be accomplished because Christ has conquered sin and the power of death. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And so while we as Christians have spiritual life now, we have freedom now, at the same time we are captive to our sinful and deteriorating bodies. And yet we put our hope and we put our trust in the fact that our bodies will be transformed, we will be renewed, we will be glorified for our eternal home. And so with all that established, we come to this iconic Pauline, so then, right? Or you'll see in some text it'll say, therefore, And we read this in verse 12. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, given that we have been justified by the sovereign plan of the Father through the work of Jesus Christ by his indwelling Holy Spirit, Christians then are debtors. We are those who have, have an obligation. 
And Paul emphasizes that obligation is not to the flesh, right? What has the flesh done for you? It's done nothing. It's ruined you. It's corrupted you. It's enslaved you. Our obligation is not to the flesh. Rather, it's inferred that we are debtors to the Spirit. We are slaves to Christ, to live for Him. Since Christ gives life to those that are in Christ, then should it not stand to reason that we are to live as those who are Christ's? Right? We are to live as those who are Christians. If we are marked by the Spirit of God within us, then we need to live in such a way that aligns with our identity. You see, justification and sanctification are to be inseparable. I mentioned at the beginning that Romans chapter 8 is primarily about assurance. It's primarily about who we are. It's not primarily about sanctification. That being said, it is our assurance in our position in Christ as those indwelt by the Holy Spirit that should lead us toward greater Christ-likeness. As Christians, we, uh, we are a people that have an obligation of flesh mortification. Okay? Put another way, as Christians, we are those who need to be killing our sin. And we can only accomplish this through the power of the Spirit of God. To, to be killing our sin, to be active in flesh mortification, this takes active work. If you're like me, you don't wake up and naturally just start slaying your sin. If you're doing that, the kids haven't woken up yet, right? So verse 13 tell us, tells us, though, that we need to put to death the deeds of the body that we may live. And the phrase here is in the present tense. It indicates that this is a continuing activity of killing the flesh, of killing the deeds of the flesh. We need to be about this each day, each hour, each minute. And so church, I would ask you, do you take your sin seriously? Do you recognize that your sin wants to rule over you? Are you actively trying to kill your sin? Jesus sure took sin seriously. We see that Jesus says, if your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. Jesus isn't advocating here for, for self-mutilation. He's saying that the point is that sin will destroy you if you allow it to. And so instead of giving it a foothold, you must be relentless in your fight against sin. And yet the, the glorious context of this exhortation is that we are not to do any of this by our own strength. We're not to do any of this by conjuring up the energy, by giving ourselves a motivational pep talk. We are to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit who is inside of us. Because we have Christ dwelling in us, we have the strength to fight against our sin. We read in 1 John 3, verses 8 through 9, where John is warning against the, the pattern of habitual sin. And he says there, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Pastor Garrett Kell makes three observations from this text. The first is that through justification, we are free from the penalty of sin. So this is once and for all. Through justification, where we were once guilty, we are marked innocent. We are covered with the righteousness of Christ. If we've put our faith in Christ, we can believe and know that once and for all, we are justified. Number two, he observes, through sanctification, we are being freed from the power of sin. So those who have been justified, have been filled with the Spirit, and we are to be growing in Christ-likeness. We will not be free of sin in this life. We will not be perfect. Our body of death and of sin will wage war against us, but we are to be growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Third, he observes, through glorification, we will be freed from the presence of sin. Justify, change, once and for all fighting our sin, being sanctified, growing in Christ-likeness, and looking forward to the day when we will be glorified, when we will be free from sin and death. That's the good news that I was talking about at the beginning. Yes, there is bad news, but the bad news is what makes the good news so sweet. And so, in light of all this, let me leave you with some final exhortations. If you are here and you are not a Christian this morning, I would, I would beg you to place your faith in Jesus. Your good works, your, your good intentions will not justify you. You cannot do that. You have offended a righteous, holy, and good God. You must rely on the justification that comes through Christ alone to be saved. Maybe you're a non-Christian and you're on the other end of the spectrum. You're like, hey, forget about trying to, to justify myself before God. I'm pursuing this life. This life is good. There are pleasures that are plentiful. And I can tell you, they will leave you empty. You will not find full satisfaction. You will be left broken. And so, if you have not trusted in Christ, believe in Him. Allow the Holy Spirit to indwell you and be born again. Maybe you're here today, you're a Christian, you've placed your faith in Christ, and yet as you've listened to the attributes of the flesh versus the attributes of the Spirit, your conscience has been pained that you have been living more like the world than like Christ. You feel weak, you feel unable to please Him. The good news is that you are. You are weak, you are unable to please Him, but the Holy Spirit dwelling in you will empower you to fight your sin. And so you must repent of your sin. You must no longer tolerate sin. You must no longer permit it and give it space in your life. And rather, you must make a habit of actively, daily fighting against your sin and living in the identity that you have been given in the Holy Spirit. Lastly, regardless of whether you are a Christian that is in a season of doubt and hardship and struggle, or you are a Christian that is in a season of great growth and abundance, we all must make a habit of preaching the truths of the gospel to ourselves, day in and day out, of reminding us of our position 
before Christ as those that are justified, as those that are in the Spirit. We need to tell ourselves that we have been justified and that we have a great hope awaiting us, that one day we will be released from this deteriorating body. We will be released from this body of sin and flesh. And as we preach that to ourselves, we will be empowered through the Spirit of God to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Church, I pray that we would be a church that preaches the gospel to ourselves and to one another and that grows in the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, our hearts resonate with Paul as he describes the tension in his life, the tension between his flesh and his spirit. Lord, we cannot live effectively as Christians apart from your power, apart from your spirit in us. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us first off to know, to understand, to wholeheartedly believe that we are those indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God, help us not to run, to strive, to punch against the wind in our own effort, but help us to fight our sin in light of our identity as your children, as those who are in the light, as those who have been given life and freed from sin, not debtors to sin, but debtors to Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we have hope. We pray that you would help these truths to sink into our hearts and that they would color the way that we live our lives each day. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.